0: Hello, Ilya. (laughs) Hey, we've got a fantastic episode today. On the show is Mike Prickett, who is an incredible cinematographer who has shot tons and tons of stuff. It's worth uh, looking at his IMDb. We will put a link in our show notes at camnoir.com to Mike Prickett's uh, IMDb. He's also a customer of Hot Rod Cameras. He uh, reminded me when we spoke uh, that uh, he used gear on his new series, or or a relatively new series on HBO called 100 Foot Wave, which is-
1: Wait a minute. So uh, is being a customer at Hot Rod Cameras just like (laughs) a one-way ticket
0: to being interviewed on our show definitely definitely not and i gotta say that newsflash we don't talk about it with everyone who's on the show but a lot of these people who come on the show happen to be customers that's true ben we we service the motion picture industry it's a pretty small club in in a lot of ways and you can't really do that or at least do well at that without running into a lot of the same people over and over again and in different capacities and uh yeah a lot of people on the show they're customers of hot rod that's that's kind of how it works yeah, I was just giving you shit. You're just giving me shit. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, Ben, what should we talk about for our close focus? It was something that you had brought up. It was Lawrence Shear. Oh, yes. Lawrence Shear. Uh Well, of course, it was the Emerging Cinematographer Awards, which is something that Local 600 puts on. They do it every year. I believe George Foyt won it at least once, maybe twice. Yeah. And it's a really nice group of people like, you know, they they round up like 10 people. They put them on a stage this year. The Hollywood Reporter did a really nice write up on it. And it sounds like uh, Lauren Shear was there. Yeah, and kind of alleged. Yeah. He shot a, you know, a friend of the show, shot B- the hangover, Joker, bit, yeah. upcoming Black Adam. And he urged this year's crop of award winners to take risks and to be gentle and kind to yourself because that will keep you going. How can you be gentle uh, and kind to yourself and also take risks? Maybe what it is is like you take the risk. If the risk doesn't work out, then you're gentle with yourself. So I think maybe, oh. maybe it's maybe it's, it's like that. Is it like don't take physical risks with yourself? Oh, I, th- I think that that there there could be that too. Because I mean, you know, safety third is the popular <laughs> saying. <laughs> um,
1: anyway, you know, right, it, uh, right up there with if you don't come in here on Saturday, don't bother coming in here
0: on Sunday. That's a famous one and one of my favorites as well. (laughs) So uh, I guess the Hollywood Reporter reports that there was a montage of Lawrence Shear's work and it included some memorable moments from The Hangover. And then afterwards he quipped, I make a living shooting dumb shit, <laughs> which uh, uh, Lawrence can be uh, very droll. And I, I really appreciate that. I think that that's wonderful. So uh, so yes, we'll put a link to this Hollywood Reporter story in our show notes. And you should definitely take a look at some of the people who won this award. It's pretty famous. Like, you know, as far as the industry goes, the union really likes to try to elevate its members, especially members who are not necessarily at, at the classification of director of photography. Maybe they work as operators or assistants or loaders and everyone is uh, eligible to then compete in this little competition thing. You can submit something and if they pick you, then you might win an mm. award. You get a you get a bunch of like swag too. I know that like rental houses give out like, you know, hey, here's $15,000 worth of rental equipment for your wow. next rental and stuff like that. Yeah. It's like, I think that's what uh, either Chapman or Fisher, one of them does like, hey, here's a, I mean, these are expensive things. So it's really nice that they're generous. And, you know, uh, rental gifts like that are really, really important to people who are working working. working professionals who that's, that's a big part of what it is that they're doing. And maybe on the production they're working on, if it's significantly budget challenged, maybe uh, the production can't afford to do it, but then the DP can step in and say, Hey, I got a connection. I can do a thing. I can bring in this sort of resource and it it really makes them look like a hero. So that's one of those things. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. So Ben, I think we should get to the interview with Mike Prickett. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by cinematographer Mike Prickett, who has shot tons and tons of the best ocean wave surfing footage you've ever seen his latest project is called 100 foot wave 100 foot wave is on hbo you can watch it now Uh, i've watched it i love it but it's actually not fair to call you a cinematographer i'd say that you are an extreme cinematographer tell our listeners a little bit about 100 foot wave and
2: and what it's about Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, a little bit about the 100-foot wave. The 100-foot wave is a show basically about chasing a 100-foot wave, and it's about Garrett McNamara's search. He's always been searching for big waves, but um, he went to Nazaré, Portugal, and he discovered this little fishing village that he thinks has the biggest waves in the world. And so it's kind of centered around Nazaré and gigantic waves. And we do go all around the world chasing big waves, but it's really about... Nazare, Portugal, and Garrett McNamara. It's really a compelling documentary and actually another
0: one that you shot years ago. I'm just going to throw back to it here for a second. I don't want to stop talking about 100 Foot Wave, but it's called Step Into Liquid. And I remember that was the first time I'd ever heard someone really describe the once in, never out cult of surfing, that once you fall in love with this, no matter what, it will never leave you. And I kept being reminded of that all through 100 Foot Wave because there's so much stuff that goes on, which you would think most people would go, you know what? I'm not going to do that again. I am not going to, to, you know, potentially put myself at risk. But you continuously see the people in the documentary, Garrett in particular, getting back up after being knocked down and going out and doing what is truly death defying. Can you talk a little bit about the aspect of the thrill of the giant wave and the danger that is inherent in this process?
2: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of danger involved in it. And it seems like the whole hundred foot wave is really about people getting hurt. (laughs) i um, including myself and the passion of chasing these big waves and putting themselves at risk. It's amazing. Like, it's really like they have their families, their kids and all this stuff. And then when these gigantic storms come, these guys drop everything and risk dying at, you know, on ev- almost every wave, they, r- they really risk it all. And it's amazing to watch and it's scary to watch, but it's scary to be involved, actually swim as well, even for the cameraman because everyone's kind of immersed in mother nature and you never know what to expect. And over the years, technology has gotten, like we've used jet skis to get people in and jet skis for rescues. And now the guys wear flotation vests to help bring it to the surface quicker. Cause if you get knocked out, you're pretty much dead in, in, in our game. And so if you get knocked out and you have a flotation vest, it gives guys four to six minutes to kind of find you, get you and revive you. And so that started kind of, I just about the step the liquid days and now it's really evolved. It's really fine tuned now. And, and that's all applied in a hundred foot waves.
0: Yeah, it's so dangerous. It is like, look, I I grew up in Maui, actually, and I I was a a little Howley boy there up until through like my my early teenage years. And I'd go out to the beach and every once in a while, you know, body surfing, I I get dragged across the bottom. And I was in like little tiny waves. This is like, you know, okay, well maybe six foot waves or something like that, but you know, small waves compared to what people go out and surf typically. And it is scary and you feel the damage That can be inflicted by something so powerful and when you magnify that to these gigantic waves that frankly i feel like i understand the thrill must be incredible but that danger is like one false move and and you're dead do you you understand the obsession and how much of the danger plays into the obsession there
2: they're used to wiping out they're used to the things that happen but like there's shallow places like tahiti and Chopo, like i mean it's only five feet deep of water there so there's a good chance you have this huge wave and there's a good chance you're going to hit the bottom. And if you do, you're probably going to hit the bottom and then you're going to get cut up. But as long as you don't hit your head and get knocked out, you're, you're probably survive. Um, but, but yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and there's, there's young kids. i watched Kai Lenny. That's just a little kid to now he's kind of like, I'd say he's the best in the world um, and he's pushing the levels harder than anybody. He's good at everything from foil boarding, kite boarding, windsurfing and surfing. And he's, other guys are just dropping down the face, but this guy is doing flips and 360s and double 360s is up down the face. So I think the younger kids are really starting to push it, push it. And I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years and in the last 30 years, I've seen so much change. I I'm, I can't imagine what these young kids are going to bring in 10 or 15 years from now.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It It's pretty stunning watching uh, Kai out in the 100-foot wave documentary watching the stuff that he's doing out there on those massive waves it's like it's bringing what seems like sort of a shortboard flair and style to these massive waves it's you know that that there's going to be another generation of people right behind him they're just going to start emulating that too as they they come on up and it's thrilling and also at the same time chest clenching breath holding like i can't believe what i'm seeing when i'm seeing it it's absolutely startling what's it like for you being out there and and you see that i I mean is it just now so old hat that you know you've you've at all? Or do you still have these moments of like, oh my God, what am I witnessing at this exact moment?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. You can't get complicit in it or anything. Cause it's like guys are pushing it heavier and heavier and and, and you think, oh, that's safer and safer because they have a life vest on and they have this jet ski, but then, but then they that just makes them have this sense of empowerment and they kind of go deeper, bigger and bigger. So it's, there's no end to it. you know, I um, mean, you see those big ships out of the ocean going over the, you know, like, these gigantic waves on that ocean. I mean, those eventually hit the shore somewhere and and these guys are chasing those and trying to ride them and i used to when i was little not little but when i was younger i'd go out chasing big waves and i'd say bye to my family like i kind of like you know i'd I'd, I'd really give my daughter and stuff a big hug kind of like expecting like that could be the last time and i think all the surfers do the same you know like you you say bye you don't want to really admit that but it's it's true you do you do say that bye you give that extra little struggle to your daughter or your wife or whatever and then um Certainly you just don't know what's going to happen and you don't know how the wave's going to react and every single wave is different. And so every time you're in a different position, you're going to land different, you're going to hit your head different, you're going to skip across the water different. The density could hit you, the board can hit you. And so there's so many things that can happen. That I, I guess to your answers, yeah, I, I'm always nervous every time I go out. Yeah. I don't know how you couldn't be, but I, I felt like I had to ask because you've been
0: doing it for so long. Tell me how you came to be attached to this project. How did, how did you uh, get hooked up with 100 Foot
2: Wave? I made a movie called Chasing Mavericks with Gerard Butler. And I guess they really liked the, what I had done on that movie. And I was a direct photography for, for all the action stuff in that. And I guess we got everybody out safely. I mean, we did get Gerard Butler get injured a little bit, but basically we got some really good footage in big waves with the little kids and all these different people, and we did it safely. And I think that was uh, the first attraction to them.
0: Was The Hundred Foot Wave always imagined uh, from the get-go as this uh, six-part series? It, it's got this huge epic scope and scale, and it spans the better part of a decade. I mean, it starts like back in, I think, 2010, 2011, something like that. Uh, so how does a documentary like that happen? Was there, were you involved at that point or was it archival footage? How, how does a, something this big get put together like that?
2: You know, um, the archival footage is probably another reason that I got the job as well, because I had a lot of archival footage of Garrett. But originally, when they first approached me, they wanted to do an IMAX film of this. Um, and it was just going to be a film. It wasn't going to be a, a six-part series. It wasn't going to be a television thing. It was going to be an IMAX thing. And then so I started breaking down all the good things and bad things about doing IMAX. And I did an IMAX film in Tahiti called The Ultimate Wave. And it was a 3D IMAX film. And... And it's very hard to deal with those cameras and especially in 3D in gigantic waves and to get that camera and all that system in big waves and plus just shoot a little bit of film and change it. So it was going to be a big ordeal. And once they started seeing the price tags get bigger and bigger and bigger, as I was building the budgets, they um, were looking around for different aspects. And then HBO got wind of it. And then from there it was, it became a six part series. Wow. So you've got all this
0: footage, you're coming in and you're capturing new stuff. And I can't imagine it's very safe to have cameras down in the really, really deep surf that's going on and the, and the huge waves. Uh, is it long lenses from shore? Is it uh, aerial drone type of stuff? Can you talk a little bit about how you approach uh, a project just of this magnitude and scale from a technical standpoint? We don't have a tendency to go uh, too deep into technology, but you know certainly feel free to talk as much tech as you want in this just because because I'm fascinated by it. And I don't think that the way that you shoot is really like anyone else shooting today. Uh,
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, of course we do do long lenses from the cliff and from the beach, like a normal, you know, someone to shoot regular surfing. So we had people lined up on on top of the cliff on the lighthouse shooting long lenses. And then we um, had drones as well. And Nazareth is really foggy. So when it gets really foggy, all your long lenses are just useless because they can't shoot through that fog and get up there. So basically the drone and people in the water is, is your best bet for that. So the drones are good. We actually started using a waterproof drone at the end so we could get it, it could get hit by a wave and just flip over and take off and shoot more. So that was kind of amazing. At the end of the shooting, we got that developed. But um, I guess the most interesting thing that we did, I I felt was we built a remote control jet ski with a, a gimbal on it so we could control it from two miles away and we could have a a longer lens and a camera like so it could be bouncing around on the jet ski right in the impact zone of the waves dodging the surfers and I could control it safely from up on a cliff and I could zoom in and you do all kinds of creative cinematic stuff and it was stabilized so then it looked like you're on land but you're actually on a jet ski and you're tracking along with the surfers and so that's tracking was kind of like dolly shots from the water that's kind of never been done before ever and um so that was I think the most unique thing that we did.
0: So you use also, though, a lot of action cameras, a lot of like waterproof cameras. And I wouldn't say that the production relies on that. But now some of the most dramatic and dynamic stuff comes from these like board mounted cameras that are moving around and whipping around. Can you talk about how the use of these cameras has changed? I mean, because really, it's only been a few years now that they had resolutions and quality level that could cut into a, a project like this. Can you talk a little bit about the, the action cams and how the action cams get utilized?
2: Yeah, it's amazing how these, you know, technologies advanced. I mean, back, it seems like that, that long ago, I was shooting um, 16 millimeter film with a Photosonics, little 100-foot loads, and we put that in front of the camera, and you, you'd get a quick shot, but it would be amazing shots, but um, it just, you know, it's just one or two waves, and that, that'd be it. And then uh, then GoPro came out with a camera, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, and that kind of was like a, the beginning of the game changerness of getting away from the film and getting five hours of roll time off a single camera. We started using those at Chasey Mavericks, actually. He sent me a bunch of, like, I think they were like the original GoPros. And since then, GoPros advanced so much. Um, and I think they're at GoPro 11 right now. And the, the stability and everything of those cameras is just, it's amazing. It's, it's really, it's really cool. So we used the Z camera, at, which is a little, little sensor block camera. We did that in one of the gimbals as well. And then we used GoPros for on top of the helmets, on the jet skis, on all that kind of stuff. And everything cut really well together. And we, we did it use all these different formats, you know, where you were shooting full frame, super thirty-five, and all these different things, but it it really all meshed together because we had we had all this stock footage and old footage of Garrett and all these and, and everybody from in Lair and all these guys from years past. And, and it was a mishmash of um, you know, sixteen millimeter, thirty-five millimeter video, digi beta, all these weird things. Um yeah, yeah. So, so when it all came together, there was no big notice of hey, this there's uh, uh, of any kind of format change or anything. It was just kind of felt right. I hear from people all the time who are so
0: precious about, oh, I couldn't possibly use this other camera or this other lens. Oh, these things wouldn't cut together. Oh, we couldn't make it work. And you know more than anyone going through this process and having all of these variety of things all play nice together. That's just not true. That if you plan out and know what you're doing from the get-go, this stuff has all reached such a high quality that you can a hundred
2: percent make it all work together. Oh and yeah. It, it, yeah. All, all all the grading, all the stuff nowadays, it's like, you can use any of that. I mean, and when we had the, we did have the task of chasing waves all around the world and being here and there. And so we had a good budget, but we couldn't do, um, we had to be able to access whatever we could access at the time. And someplace, sometimes we would go somewhere and someone would be using their own monster or their own camera or their dragon camera or something that they maybe have a optimal lens or something that doesn't. Won't cover full framework. There was all these reasons to use this or that, but but I do think you can match it all. You can make it work good together. And and especially since we were telling the story from long ago, from Garrett when he was a child, using IE cameras, it was really easy to take this mishmash of cameras and lenses and make it work.
0: Well, the Post team and or if that's the people over at HBO did an incredible job because really all of that archive footage, all that footage from the early 2010s uh, up through present day is put together in, in such a an elegant and seamless manner that I loved it. And it was fun because you got little hints as you're watching it just by the the nature and the texture and the, like the patina of these different formats when you're seeing it you're like oh i know where, where we're about we are in time we're gone. we've gone back a few years for this oh i know we're in like nearly present day it's like it's so much fun Uh, This is not a small production. It is not like you out there with like a couple of cameras and stuff. You have got an army of people to make this happen. Like when when I'm watching the credits and I see the camera department and I know that, you know, you've got all these different formats from from archive and stuff, but even your interview, your A-team, your surf documentary, talk a little bit about like the human resources that are involved in mounting a production like this and making these surf events happen and get covered and everything else.
2: Yeah, it's a massive undertaking because, you know, you, at every swell, you have at least 15 cameramen probably shooting. So you catch, you know, the rights and left. And there's multiple surfers so you don't want to miss anything. And plus you guys get, you have people at the harbor getting ready. So you got, you have ENG crews there getting them prepping and all that kind of stuff. And not only is it hard to capture that day, but it's, the surf doesn't just come like on April 5th or whenever you decide it is going to be. It's like a, a year long waiting period of, you know, you have your, your big waves and in, in the Northern Hemisphere is like from November to March. And then and then you have Tahiti. So it's basically you're waiting all year for big waves. And so your crew has to be ready and, and mobile to move anywhere in the world to capture these waves. And and it's not easy to take a, a crew of 15 people and a huge truckload of equipment into Portugal. Oh, this a moment's notice. Cause you get there, you think you got everything set up and you get there, then the customs guys just stop you and they want to know if they, they want to put it when they want to hold your equipment and then they hold your equipment and next thing you know, the swell's gone and you've missed it. So we ended up having to leave a lot of equipment there. We had to leave people in different areas just so that we would be ready at any time.
0: Let's shift gears a little bit. How did you decide that this was going to be your life and career? When did you, when did you get the bug for this sort of thing?
2: I was a surfer. I was always a surfer as a kid. Um, then I was, um, I used to take pictures, still pictures of tourists in Waikiki. Um, they would go on these glass funnel boats, a Pearl Harbor cruise or something. I'd take pictures of tourists getting on these boats, and I'd take them, pictures of them jet skiing and parasailing. And then I'd run over. But this is back in the day, and I had a enlarger, and, and I'd print the pictures. You know, I'd, I'd print like an eight by ten picture. Then I'd dry it with a hair dryer, and I put in a five-gallon bucket. I'd zip, I'd drive a boat, zip it out to the boat coming out of Pearl Harbor, and sell it to them. And they, and they would sell it to the tourists coming back. That was my start in photography. And that, but uh, I, I was a surfer. I did that on the side. And then, um. I went to the Big Island, and I, I got in a car accident over there in the Big Island, and I broke both my legs. I, it was a really bad car accident. I was in, in a wheelchair for a year. Oh, wow. And the doctor said, hey, you should swim as much as you can. That'll really help your recovery. So I thought, huh. And I used to shoot my friends surfing sometimes from the beach back then. And I thought, oh, you know what? I'll do this. I'll put my camera in water housing, and all this just, because I couldn't surf because of my legs. So I, I just swam around, and I started taking pictures, still pictures of my friends surfing. and then. And then I, I found out, I, wow, I really love this. And then I, I used to surf and then shoot a little bit of pictures. And then I got to the point that I, I didn't even want to surf as much. I just wanted to shoot pictures. And I got really good at it. I got bored with stills. And that's when I put a, a bolex. A, I put a film camera into a water housing. And I started shooting film, motion from the water. And then that was a game changer for me. And I really got excited about it. And I started doing the ASP World Tour. I did that for 22 years. I traveled around the whole world shooting the, the top 33 surfers in the world. And yeah, that was like my passion. I got just, that, that hooked me. And then from there, I started doing commercials. And then that led to feature films. And that's kind of how it all happened. So I, I, I started out as a surfer that got hurt way back then. And then after that, I got completely recovered. And then I kept doing the tour and I, I would surf and shoot. I, and it's funny because I broke both my legs in an accident way back then. And I got better. And it, it brought my career to me. And then at the end of Chasing Mavericks, I rescued a guy in Tahiti, and I got paralyzed at the bends. So now I'm paralyzed from the waist down. I can walk around on crutches. I think if you if you, if you saw the Hunters' Wave in the fifth episode, that's me hobbling around on the crutches.
0: Um, I, I was going to say, you, t- you tell the story in the 100-foot wave, and I, I was going to get to it eventually, but since you bring it up here, you saved a man's life. Basically, you saw someone who was going to drown, and rather than let them drown, you risked your own life to save them. So, can you tell that story?
2: Yeah, yeah. We, we were in Tahiti. Uh, it was at the end of the shooting of Chase of and I went to Tahiti to shoot a commercial for another client up there. And then while we were shooting that commercial, I saw a diver in trouble that he'd run out of air and he was stuck in a eight down current, you know, it was even maybe stronger. So it's basically like a waterfall underwater. He, he was going down in that waterfall underwater and kind of trying to swim back up straight up the waterfall instead of swimming out of it. And then up, it's like, a, you learn that from surfing as you know how to get out of the currents and stuff. And he was kind of fighting a, a losing battle. And I could tell he was panicked. His eyes were really big. He was out of air and he was 220 feet underwater. So it oh was, it was, it was yeah. quite deep, you know? And so I went down there and I shared my air with him, but he was kind of panicked and his eyes were really big. And hyperventilating and, and you can't talk underwater. So you, I was trying to get him to calm down, but um, I guess long story short is we ran out of air coming up from 220 feet. It was even deeper as we got out of the current, but coming up from that deep, we ran out of air probably about, around hundred feet or so. We ran out of air somewhere around there that we couldn't do any safety stops that you normally would do mm-hmm. if, if, when you're down that deep. And so not having air, you can't hold your breath for 15 minutes doing a safety stop. So basically we had to do emergency ascent and we went up to the top and yeah, and then basically that's this the repercussion of, of the bends. The bends
0: yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a harrowing thing to live through. And that man, of course, owes his life to you. So it's an amazing story and it's a, it's a real act of bravery. And I think it was uh, amazing that you got the opportunity to add that into a hundred foot wave as well. Uh, can you say how this is like, you know, what sort of accommodations now for how you approach projects? Cause you're still working, you're, you're doing stuff. How do you make it happen these yeah. days?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I guess when I first got injured, I'm, I was paralyzed from the chest down. So they just like flopped me over on the bed every four hours. And then I thought, oh my God, this is it. I'm doomed. And then I was there in this, when I was shooting the IMAX movie in Tahiti a long time ago, one of my safety swimmers, the, the day after we got done with the movie, he got an accident in and he was paralyzed and he's completely paralyzed from the waist down. Oof. And his name is Baptiste. And he was sitting next to me in the hospital and he goes, did you just move your toe? And I'm like, he goes, try to move your toe. And I'm like, Try to hard it, and he goes. You moved your toe, because and, and so he could never do that. And so that little spark got me inspired, and I just kept working at it, working at it. I was going to deco- living in decompression chambers basically, and um, I worked myself up so that I didn't have to always be in a wheelchair. I could move around in crutches, but I I can swim good now, but I I can't swim like I used to. And I developed different ways to do these jobs. I mean, I had that knowledge and stuff to do. I started thinking about gimbals, and I, I got the shot of her F one, and I started doing a lot of helicopter work. From with the F1 and, and the helicopter, and that gave me a new life. I thought, hey, you know, I can, I still felt useful. And I felt like, hey, I can get these beautiful images. And then, and then after shooting from there, I thought, hey, this would be great on a boat. So we started shooting on a boat, and then I go, oh my gosh, what do what you do on a jet ski? So we put the F1 on a jet ski, and it was big, it was a really big unit. And then we kind of stumbled on this new technology and new applications of it. I realized, hey, even being paralyzed, I mean, you could be even worse off than me, and you could still do this stuff. So if, if you're paralyzed out there and you're thinking of something to do, this could be something that you could do. And it's very exciting and it's very fun. So never give up, I think, is a good answer to that. So I didn't give up, and I kind of, we developed a, a gimbal that was Small. smaller. I like the size of a soccer ball, really. And that wow. that we could put on the back of the jet ski and, and control. We have these technologies, amazing. So we have these new airs that we could do all the controls from two miles away up on a cliff. And so that brought this whole new... I could be in the water without being in the water. I could do all these kind of things. So it brought a new life to me and to my career. And it was really fun to apply it to these jobs. And now, because I mean, now we can do dolly tracks, shots in the water and now we're using electric jet skis. So it's silent and you wow. can do audio and talking. And so for the feature films to come, watch out. It's going to be crazy because we can do stuff that we never thought possible before. So it's, it's definitely, I mean, if you're doing a big movie, um, you got to check out these products.
0: That's amazing. And look, you know, stuff like the shot over and gimbal technology has Completely revolutionized Hollywood and, and the industry. And it, of course, seems logical. Why wouldn't it go to water and boats and jet skis and everything else? But I don't know anyone else doing that. I think that's super amazing and innovative that, that you've taken it on and you've built a tiny version of a little gimbal that you can jet ski mount and stuff. I have to imagine that the shots that
2: you get from that are insane. They're so crazy. We have another gimbal that's coming out, I'd say, in the November of um, early December. And that is 100% waterproof, we can put it, so we're gonna do long line with that helicopter. So it'll be at 100 feet below a full-size helicopter. And we go at 30, 40 feet underwater. And we can come up, we can let a 100 foot wave land right on it, we can be all these places, but it's completely waterproof. So it's just, tides are changing fast and it's so exciting. Wow. Okay.
0: So when you have that, I really want to see that. I think that sounds amazing. I definitely want to have you come back on and uh, do some sort of like show and tell. Uh, this is technology that that
2: uh, you're helping to spearhead and helping yeah, I'm, to. Yeah, I'm, bring- I'm working with uh, Immortal Cameras, a new company. Um, is my friend Brad Herndell. Uh, and yeah, he's he's just an amazing guy and such a smart guy. He's been helping us. He helped us with the last system and now. He's moved on with his own company, and and we're collaborating and trying to just blow people away with the, what you can see. You know, in Mother Nature, it's you got all these crazy elements, and to be able to do get a big camera, a large format sensor in these locations with a rain spinner and stuff that just so you don't have water drop nothing, and just be in these elements, it's it's amazing.
0: I love watching your stuff, Mike. It's so much fun. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous, and it is not lost on me all of the technical hurdles and challenges that. Uh, a project like 100 foot wave just must have been and by looking at the credits you know how many people I- anyone at home can get an idea of how many people went into doing this i just want to say thank you so much for being on the show this was it, it was really a delight and hey, thank you for being a customer of hot rod cameras I, I really i really appreciate that and i can't wait to have you on again i can't wait to to hear all about this new helicopter gimbal rig that you're working on it sounds uh, amazing
2: yeah, I'm excited to show it to you next time I'm on and, and and give you a little demo of it. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised, but thank you for having me on and um, yeah, I appreciate it.
0: All right, Ben, that was Mike Prickett. Uh, awesome. I, yeah, really incredible guy. I love talking to him. It was also possibly the most difficult technical interview I've ever done One of my key pieces of equipment here, my my Zoom recorder had some sort of weird error and I had to try to troubleshoot it on the fly as we were recording. But basically everything Mike Prickett said to me for like the first 10 minutes had this super obnoxious echo cutting out. Oh, God. But but I do know that his side was recorded fine and I hope that it's not too hard for Ben Katz to have put all that together. But uh, for me, I was kind of like... Oh, my God, I think I know what he said. I'm going to do my best here to figure it out. Anyway, so here it is, pulling back the curtain a little bit on the most uh, challenging interview I I think I ever did, only because I could not really hear what the other person was saying and I kind of had to uh, do the best that I could.
1: Hey, can I, can I admit something about my technical setup that, uh, that, that screwed me up a little bit Yeah, as you know, and I don't know that I've really talked about it on the show. I recently adopted a shelter dog Oh yeah, who who likes to hang out under my desk. He's a big dog, Mm -hmm. uh, as it turns out all German shepherd and he is the perfect gentleman doesn't try and get on the furniture, knew how to use our dog door, gentle and sweet with our son, a dream on the walk. But I found out the hard way that he has a habit of liking to chew through cables.
0: Oh, no. Did he chew through your, your new internet cable, your new connection? No, no. Okay. No, no. He, oh, didn't, wow. he
1: didn't chew through that. But I had a cable that was connecting uh, my Zoom interface to my computer for when we do these Zoom interviews. And I was like, uh, why is it not working? And then I looked at him like chewed through. And like a week oh, no. earlier, I, I had a crappy set of headphones that weren't really that good and I needed to replace them anyway. And uh, I thought that accidentally one of them had been like ripped in half or something. Nope. He had chewed through them too. So it's, uh you know, operation remove all the chewable cables, the the delicious cables that are going into my computer oh, no. are all moved. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That That's fun. I remember we had a cat that chewed through a cable once. I, I couldn't believe it. That had electricity flowing through it too. So that was Amazing. He survived.
1: Yeah, he's a good dog. I just, uh, I have to just dress the cables away from his face. I think he might have just been chewing on them because they were in his way, too. Mm. Anyway, if I'm not mistaken, Ilya, I think it's a special time right now for us to uh, pay some bills. (laughs) That's
0: right. It is bill- Paying time. Uh, So we have to thank uh, one of our sponsors, and I believe this week uh, we have to thank the fine people over at DZO. Their website is dzofilm.com. They make really impressive entry-level cinema lenses, and uh, they're available in PL mount. A lot of sort of entry-level cinema lenses are not. They also make zooms. A lot of uh, entry-level cinema lens makers don't make zooms. They make zooms both for the APS-C Super 35 format and full-frame. And of course, full-frame works on Super 35, but they, they make products for both and they're, they're priced accordingly. And they they have a lot of products. They keep coming out with primes. They keep coming out with uh, different forms of accessories. And I want to encourage our listeners just to go check out the DZOfilm.com website. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Of course, all DZO film products are available over at Hot Rod Cameras, and we stock a ton of them, including the Kata Zooms, which are the full frame Zooms, as well as the Vespid Primes, which have been ridiculously popular. We actually shot a little uh, demo video a while ago, kind of comparing all the different entry level primes in the market and put it on YouTube. It's got several thousand views now, which is which is very cool. And it's a very short way to very quickly do a apples to apples comparison of what all these different lenses look like. So uh, anyway, DZO, makers of fine products, check out their website, pick them up at HotRide Cameras. And uh, thanks very much for being a sponsor of the show. Kick ass. Thank you, DZO. And now, short ends. All right, Ben, it is our famed short end time. What is your obsession this week? What are you all about? What is going on that uh, has captivated the imagination (laughs) and life of Ben Rock?
1: Well, this is a big one. Okay, Um, I'm buckling uh, up. I've hinted at it on Twitter and I I don't know that I've mentioned it on here, but I have been working for some time on uh, an audio drama for Audible. This is kind of your thing. You've done audio dramas before. You, you were like, the second one. Yeah. 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 We did a uh, video palace for shutter, which and, is great
0: by the way. Totally. Oh, totally. You can, you can find that where you get your podcast, right? It's on uh, and, Spotify. And by the way,
1: just yeah. if you think, uh, if you're listening to this and you go, Ben and Ilya are friends. So Ilya uh, ipso
0: facto is going to endorse everything he does. Incorrect. True. <laughs> Incorrect. <Yeah. laughs> uh, I, have, I have told Ben many times what a steaming pile of, of poo. Some of the stuff is that he's done. So th- oh, there you uh, go. <laughs> that, you're like, thanks? what thing was
1: that? I, I don't remember, but <laughs> thanks.
0: Yeah. And, and, and this is a two way street. Ben's told me uh, many times, too, about how stuff that I've done have not moved the needle in his brain at all. So I, I, yeah. I,
1: I don't recall doing that, but sure. Uh, yeah. So I've been working on this. Uh, I'm not exaggerating for probably about three years and it's coming out on October 27th. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's called Catchers and it's a monster story. And I feel like I have several tiers of struggle whenever I try to explain it to anyone because it's on Audible. It is not an audio book; it's a full audio drama. So it's basically a movie with no pictures. It's a, mm-hmm. a movie that's perfect for us to talk about on a cinematography podcast. That's right. <laughs> so it's a horror thing. It stars Billy Gardell, who people might know from he was. Mike on Mike and Molly mm. on CBS and is currently Bob on Bob Hart's Abachola And Billy is one of my oldest friends. I've known Billy since high school. We were in the same thespian troupe in high school.
0: Oh, uh, well, you thespians was, always getting together. Troop 850 represent. So
1: <laughs> he was uh, a stand-up comedian for many years. I actually drove him to his first stand-up gig. And it was written by Bob DeRosa and myself, and we kind of wrote it with Billy in mind for that role. The other lead is a woman named Horizon Guardiola, who is kind of an up-and-coming star. She was on uh, Baz Luhrmann's The Get Down. She was in American Gods. And she was uh, there's a Netflix series called Dare Me that's about murderous cheerleaders. And she was the lead in that. Oh, wow. And uh, she, Horizon is awesome. And and I think someone to watch. And we also have in our cast people like Marilyn Rice
0: Cub, who was oh, Chloe course, on 24. 24. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was also a personal favorite of Stephen King. I don't know if you remember that Stephen King called her out uh, specifically back when uh, 24. was. Oh, really? Record. Oh, yeah. Stephen King wrote a whole thing about it. he's like, oh, you, you keep your hands off of Chloe. If you're thinking about killing off a character, he was like going to take personal defense <laughs> to it. He was like, yeah, it was, she, it was a whole thing. She,
1: She's amazing. We also worked with uh, David Patrick Kelly, who if you've seen uh, The Warriors or The Crow, 48 Hours, uh, Twin Peaks. You know, he's just an amazing uh, actor, amazing character actor. And uh, Nikki Michaud, who's been on uh, Too Many Things to Mention. She's got a huge role in it. And uh, and also my good buddy Keith Hudson, who also went to high school with myself and Billy Gardell, who auditioned, got the role legit, like came out and and read for it. Uh, It's a really cool experience. It's a monster thing. The basic premise is about two dog catchers, one in training and one kind of crusty and about to retire. So Billy plays the crusty about to retire one and Horizon plays the young just starting out one in a small town called Buck Lake. In Colorado, they're called out to a farm in the outskirts of town where the the animals are being uh, attacked by something. So they're going out to see if it's a coyote or a mountain lion or something. And it turns out to be a horrible monster.
0: <laughs> oh, you're giving it away. You're giving it away. Which, oh, I guess. which
1: turns out to be. Horrible Monsters.
0: Oh. <laughs> well, you know, uh, there is something wonderful about audio. And I think that anyone who's listening to our podcast, you know, understands that because even though there's a podcast about visuals, there's visuals that play out in your head. And fa- frankly, sometimes it is not convenient to watch something and live your life. And so I think that there's plenty of people out there who listen to this, who like podcasts, who might really like catchers, who really think that consuming something like that and allowing their, their imagination to create the images for them. Might be the best way to enjoy your your project, Ben. So I think it's perfectly appropriate for you to bring it up. And it being your obsession, since you only worked on it for the last three years and couldn't talk about oh, it at all. To oh anyone. my God! Yeah,
1: yeah. No. Well, and, and I'm able yeah. to talk about it now because I was given the permission checks cleared. To- I was get, no, that's. I was given yeah, they're owned by Amazon. You know, the the, the check's cleared. I was uh, given permission to talk about it on the Movie Crypt podcast with Adam Green and Joe Lynch, and that episode dropped today. So if you want to hear me talk about it more, you can check out the Movie Crypt podcast, which is a great podcast where they interview amazing filmmakers and and storytellers and actors and stuff and also once in a while me. So Adam and Joe are good friends of mine and it was exciting to go talk to them about it. But that was kind of our first big splash with it. So I'll be mentioning it again when the thing finally drops, but like I actually don't care if you uh get the free trial uh for Audible which you, which are easy enough to get, listen to my thing and then cancel your free trial. Just uh for God's sakes, listen to Catchers. Uh, li- if you're going to listen to it, listen to it. Soon. Soon after it comes out, it would mean all the world to me because uh, the bigger a hit it is, the more likely it is that Audible will have us back to do more stuff.
0: Yes. And and definitely they should have you back to do all the stuff. That would, that would be great.
1: It would be a lot of fun. So I'll be uh, talking about it more and more as we I'll probably bring it up uh, whenever our episode is that airs closest to October 27th. But Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week?
0: You know, it's a documentary on Netflix called... Eat the Rich, The GameStop Saga. Have you, uh, oh, have you heard
1: I, of it? I, I saw the trailer for it and I have not watched it yet.
0: You know, I did not expect, I, I really didn't expect to watch it, but it was one of those things where it was like, ooh, I want more information. And typically when I click on one of the things on Netflix that, you know, to get more information, if you're not fast rather than getting the more information, it just immediately goes into playing. It's like autoplay here. We're going to, at least that's how it's set up on, on on my system. And I usually hate that, but this time, I let it go. I let it go for about 20, 30 seconds. And all the other people around me were like, oh, I kind of remember this. They were not in the, uh, you know, the GameStop, Robinhood investment sort of craze that that went on or any of these sort of cryptocurrencies that were sort of at the same time, like uh, really big news. And uh, I was sort of on the fringes of this. I didn't buy a bunch of GameStop or anything like that. But I do remember one day when GameStop wouldn't allow people to buy the stock. I remember that very, very clearly. And that is... Well featured in this documentary and they interview some incredible characters. There are several characters in the like here's the thing. It's narrated by Guy Raz. Guy Raz does wonderful VO work. And so I, I enjoy listening. I, I listen to him he's, read the, he's an NPR guy, right? He is. And uh, I would listen to him read the phone book, but it's it's really fun to listen to him narrate this, especially because it doesn't take itself too seriously, and it does do a very good sort of expose of the run-up to what happened, and sort of the fallout after the fact, and where things are today. And that they do a really excellent job about doing all of this in three, I think, one-hour episodes. It's it's three hours of television. It is well put together. There was no need to make it six hours or 10 hours or any of these, the, these other things. It's really, really well edited. The VO is great. The, the scripting for the whole thing and the characters that they get, I just can't say enough good things about it. It did exactly what you want a movie to do. It left you wanting more. And I feel like so many series these days, I don't want more. In fact, it took them so long to get to a point, I, I wanted less. But when this one was over, <laughs> I was like, boy, did, did I, I could have gone for a fourth episode. So I hope that they come back with another Eat the Rich of some sort, or maybe uh, there's a follow-up for the GameStop saga, and it is quite a saga, and boy, do they find just fantastic people to talk to about this whole experience. And uh, I would say to anyone, watch 10 minutes of this. If you don't like the first 10 minutes, you're not gonna like it. If you do like the first 10 minutes, buckle up because the whole rest of it is just as strong. It's really fun. It starts off with Jim Cramer, who, of course, you know, famous for, for mad money, but he is not a central figure in this. But he's a wonderful bit of like, hey, here's someone you might be familiar with. Here's his take on the whole situation. And now let's get into all this other stuff. And they do a really good job of jumping around and introducing people who keep coming back over and over again. And you finally get to hear their their stories and find out like what happened. And it's chock full of the wall street bets memes that really, I think that there's a lot of people who are in that community on Reddit for the memes, even if they're not, uh, even if they're just lurking or doing nothing else, but they, they play it up really big time in this documentary and totally recommend eat the rich, the game stop saga. I, oh, you've, I,
1: you, you've convinced me. I mean, like I was thinking about watching it and, uh, I don't want to name names, but I've been burned a couple of times by Netflix documentaries where I'm like, oh, Oh, that looks cool. And then I get like an episode or two and I'm like, "Uh, (laughs) what the hell was that? Exactly.
0: Not this one. No, this one's great. This, this This is really good. You'll like it.
1: Cool. I will definitely check it out. Okay,
0: so Ilya, I think that about wraps it up. Where can people find you in the world? Uh, find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. That's where I spend a good chunk of my day. Even if I'm actually not in the shop, I am doing Hot Rod Cameras related stuff and uh, my, my team is finding me no matter where I am to give me more stuff to do. So, so oh, it, it, all it, right. it works out well. Ben, where can people find you?
1: You can find me at benrock.com. I never get tired of saying that come and check it out. You can find all my socials on there. Uh, You know, hit me up on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Don't do the TikTok.
0: Maybe one day I'll try it. I don't know. (laughs) Hey, Ben, we don't have anyone to thank. We do this whole thing all by ourselves. Wait, no, that's not true. We have to thank some people. Who who should we thank for, for this show you know, coming there, together? There, there was a time that we did do it all by ourselves. That's true. And then we only got like six episodes out a year. It was really sad. I know.
1: It was even, <laughs> was it even six a year? I think it was like
0: four a year. I, I think year our someday. worst year was four. And I think our best year was like, 10. So so yeah, it's way better now Uh, doing 52, 50 plus episodes a year. We're we're really, we're we're rolling.
1: So let's start by thanking the person without whom that would never happen. And that's Alana Cody. She's got some amazing uh, interviews lined up for us. I'm doing one of them tomorrow morning.
0: I am doing one tomorrow as well too, so she's got double duty for the both of us. I got to watch something well, tonight, so.
1: Well, what what I heard was that we were starting to uh, run out of the reserve. so you know mm. the tanks running dry. Then we gotta, but but I feel like we're heading into awards season, so we're gonna, yeah, we're we're gonna be plenty busy with awards people.
0: Strap in, here come the screeners. It's just a any day now. Yeah, yeah, can't wait.
1: <laughs> uh, let's also thank Ben Katz, who uh, does
0: an amazing job of making us not sound like dopes. Yes, thank you, Ben Katz. I appreciate that. I don't want to be a dope more than I already am. You,
1: you want to be dope, but you yeah. don't want to be a dope.
0: Correct. You, you, you've got my pronouns correct there. Yeah, thank there
1: you. you so, and then, lastly but not leastly, let us thank <laughs> Kays Altrachy, now a guest yes. on the show. That's right. I've been getting some very positive feedback on our interview with Kays. So uh, that was a lot of fun having Kays on the show. Uh, who uh, Kays composed every scrap of music you've heard on the show, and uh, is probably going to be composing some new music for future shows pretty soon because uh, you know we've been rolling on his original compositions for what eight years now
0: about that 2014 whenever that was yeah yeah so.
1: yeah it was like february of 2014 i think was our first episode uh about when i started working on catchers wow. so uh, all right <laughs> so uh, go to musicbykays.com and literally just say anything to Ks. just be like hey sup." You up? Anything at all?
0: (laughs) Randomly slide into his DMs. I mean, really, just anything. Just like you know, hey, you could do. You could be surreal. You could like send him like you know Salvador Dali paintings. I don't know. Whatever you like. Whatever you like. I just want somebody
1: somewhere to actually just reach out to K's and literally say anything because he worked so hard
0: on this and his work is really amazing you could so. just compliment him on being awesome or you know yeah. a handsome man any of these things
1: he's still got a a
0: really good full head of hair you know <sighs> crazy yeah, yeah. and, it, and it, it's not gray at all incredible anyway so hey that's enough about K's. ben i think that does it for our show uh do you want to sign off with any sort of catchphrase this week
1: Well, uh, really, the catchphrase is yours, so I think you should take it away.
0: I mean, it's not really much of a catchphrase. I'm just trying to be polite and thank people for listening.
1: So what do you say when
0: you you do that? Thanks for listening. All right. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter.